How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 222. Ooh, is that a spooky number? 222. Two, two. He times it by three. It comes 666. Six, six. Mm. So you're saying we need to do three times the effort of what we already... Well, we only do it two more times. Got to watch Blair Witch Project three times. There you go. Yeah. Each, each... Next one, episode 444. Yeah. It's like ProRes 444. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, we'll have to be like Blair Witch 2. Yes. Or the side documentary or... Yes. Or para- Paranormal Activity. Yeah. And then eventually and then 666. Some if we do movie. the room. How are you, Jay? <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. I'm good. I'm doing pretty well. I've had a bit of time off, actually, in the last week. Mm. I've actually only been to work twice since our last episode we recorded. Which was hmm. last Tuesday and then today. Feels like a long time. I know. Well, you've been away. Yes. You went on a trip. On an interesting trip. Yes. Everyone's been having interesting trips, quote unquote. <laughs> yes. Speaking of interesting. Yes. Jake, do you have any trivia from the film of the week? I do. Well, at least I think it's interesting. We mentioned it already, the Blair Witch Project. But that wasn't always what it was going to be called. There were other title suggestions early in the film, including... The Blair Witch Tapes, mm-hmm. and the Black Hills Project. So it sounds like they, they kind of just split the difference. <laughs> They're mm. like, well, it's a little from column A, a little from column B. Let's do that. I, I, <laughs> I appreciate it, the simplicity. And there's a lot of simplicity to appreciate with this film. But Zeke. Absolutely. What is your fun fact trivia for the Blair Witch Project? Well... And we're going to jump into uh, sort of the intricacies of this film. This this film has a lot of interesting facts to it, but mm. the one that I find just blows my mind, the film is actually in the Guinness Book of World Records uh, for the highest top-budget box office ratio. So the film only cost $60,000 to make, yep. but made back $248 million. Jesus Christ. There to put in are. perspective, what is that <laughs> like... That's eight or nine times less than t- what Titanic uh, made at the box office, right. but still ratio. But also like one billion from the budget yeah. in the first place. And I, I did check that sixty thousand dollar budget you mentioned, adjusted for inflation and converted to the Aussie dollar. That's about one hundred and sixty thousand dollars today. So still relatively cheap. Although I've I've know if there's a few local feature productions that cost about eighty grand to make, so about half the cost. Of this film, yeah, that's still so wild. That's to still think pretty about impressive. Two hundred and forty-eight million. It's it's interesting, mm. Jake. I'm going to take a fair bet yes. and say this film is on the poster behind me. Indeed, it is. Eleven hundred films you must watch at least once in your lifetime. And I think for the sole reason that, and this is the f- have you have you seen this before? No, nope. this is the first time either of us have seen this film. Obviously, we know we've heard so much about it and its mm-hmm. legacy and. In cinema, and yeah. and obviously you just mentioned like the amount of money it made, and there's all the the viral marketing in the early days of the internet. There's all of these aspects, and this is the kind of film where, as sparse and as simple as it is, and the fact that really this film only works for a very specific audience in a very specific circumstance. Despite all that, I <laughs> this film from every conceivable way is a huge success financially production wise in terms of how how little it costs to make how many days they shot it which was what eight days yep to shoot this 
um, in terms of a marketing campaign, in terms of uh, the reputation of, of the directors and the act, in every way imaginable, its legacy, how scary the movie is, it is a re- resounding success. Which is interesting because we'll talk about the actual quality of the film later in the show. Mm. <laughs> That's my little tease. That's my little tease. I but, like that. But Zeke, I like that. Have you watched anything else in this last? week yeah i've had a pretty good week actually in terms of what i've watched okay. um, even despite the traveling i like it yeah i, I didn't do too bad uh yeah, so quick double good. check uh, i know one that i definitely watched in the last week i did go to the cinema the while cinema I was away and uh saw john wick chapter four Ooh, so interesting um i still haven't seen it yet at this sort of point in time, I think that John Wick Four is is believed to be the final chapter in the John Wick, uh, I guess, quadrilogy. Yeah, I, from my understanding, it's like I don't think there are like contracts signed, or it's a little much. I, I, yeah, I kind of got that impression as well from the yeah, word across the street. I would say it. it feels like if that's the last one, that's great, and I actually kind of hope it is the last one. Okay. Um, I like, I mean, what's watching these four films, what I really like is we really are watching the evolution of Stileski as a, as a director. Mm. Um, you know, this stuntman turned director who's basically innovated the way we shoot action films or the expectation. Right. Um, and that is, you know, I'm not saying that what he did was sort of like going to be etched in time, but definitely brought some of the aspects that were probably more commonplace in Bruce Lee pictures mm. into a westernized sort of context um, yeah. to make them very consumable. I kind think. of the anti-taken approach of where that film relies on a lot of cutting yes, and uh, you know a lot of stunt men filling in the role for its famous actors like Liam Neeson and all, all, you know, all of these aspects. And you're right, you've got something like John Wick, which you know, has wider angles and longer takes and real stunts and real locations yeah. and, you know, not as much green screen, for example. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. There's there, there's definitely a great emphasis on that um, to be that way. And it is quite interesting because um, I think this film was good. It had sequences that just kind of blew your, blew your took your breath away. And yeah. um, the cinematography is easily the strongest aspect of what sort of still very Stilesky pretty has films, become yeah. very pretty um the sequences are like jaw-dropping i just think for me this film i, I still liked it but i walked away from it and went ah i'm i'm kind of done with john wick films okay. like I, I hope this is the last one i want to see stileski take his skills and his knowledge and invest it into a new creative project mm. and um I don't think that they're, even if it was set in the same universe, the John Wick universe, if you want to call it that, but this film really takes, for me, it started to feel in this one that Keanu Reeves' character, John Wick, is like a rubber man, which, okay, you know, there were some of the times that he'd fall from incredible heights or something might happen, you go, well, now I'm starting to have that, and I feel like it's come a long way from that first film that was stylized, sure, but realistic. Right. Um, and the fear of John Wick, the, the Bubba Yeager character, was genuinely there, whereas by the fourth film, it, it doesn't feel like that's sort of in the rearview mirror. I will say, and I remember the third one quite well, for me, I actually got that sense right at the very end 
there's a stunt he does where he falls off the building. He gets shot and he like falls and lands on a couple of things. And that was like the one I was like, Ooh, okay. That's a bit like, this feels marvelous. This feels like he yeah. wouldn't survive that. And it's like really. So the fact that they're pushing it even further in this fourth one is concerning to me. Yeah. And it's pretty frustrating because, um, I kind of like that sense of mortality. Like he mm. is just a man and yeah. you've tried to, um, sort of paint that at least in the first two and a bit films i reckon i mean the the second film finishes on that cliffhanger when the bounty's put on him he has to start running mm. and that's what makes that first 25 minutes of the film so good because yeah. he's m- gravely injured yeah barely surviving and holding off these whereas by this film it's like i he, he really just genuinely feels unkillable because mm. there's a sequence so he has to be at a certain place for the big climax and it just never ends it's just it's action set piece <laughs> after action set piece it's just exhausting which is something which at times in the third film i felt the same way like the i thought the scene the sequence with halle berry was too long right like yep. with the dogs it's like yeah we get it the dogs know how to do stunts yeah like, um i've been kind of thinking about this specific thing a lot lately in terms of Things where we see something in media in a show or, or a film or even games where it feels so revolutionary and it's like, oh my God, like how, how aren't more people doing something like this because this is so engaging and well-crafted mm. and, and how easily and quickly that can turn into staleness and repetitiveness. Yeah. And I thought like Uncharted is my favorite franchise, video game franchise of all time. And even by the fourth game, it's like you get sick of the climbing you get a bit sick of the shooting and the parkour. Mm. And, oh, this rock fell off, but he grabs another rock. And it's like, as much as I love that, I didn't think it was possible for it to become stale. And yet it did within just a few years. Yeah. And something like it might be happening to John Wick now, where it's like it's almost getting a bit overwhelming. Well, and the irony is, like, one of the trailers that plays before the film is is the next Fast and Furious film. And you're just sitting there going, <laughs> I, like... I, I just burst out laughing yeah. watching that trailer. I couldn't even take it. Because you're watching it, and you're just sitting there going, like, <laughs> well... We're getting to a point now where we're starting to approach that crossroads where things are getting a little bit more ridiculous and a little bit more comical, and, and it's fine. But for me, it's like, yeah, it's that tonal shift, yeah. like, or even borderline genre shift. Like, it's kind of like a different film. Then it's just, yeah. like you said, it's just essentially a more violent Marvel property. Um, well, if, you, if those stakes slowly get removed with each entry... And you lose sense of John Wick as like a, as a character who could become yeah. um, like in the first God film runs. he's feared, but he's still tortured, captured, and and barely survives. Yeah, exactly. He's not inhuman. Yeah, he's a he's a volatile. And the third and the know, fourth one have more feelings like the third and the fourth film are really starting to feel more and more like a video game, like you said, that mm-hmm. have these like seemingly never ending like cut like theatrical cut scenes where the, the the character is in more and more ridiculous dangerous positions like well it wasn't it for me with my uncharted example it wasn't that it was more dangerous or more ridiculous or unbelievable it was just like the shtick yeah and eventually that shtick runs out and i was going to kind of use that to segue a little bit not that i feel like the shtick is fading at all but with succession where it has such a strong style, you know, the fast-paced documentary style and, like, mm. the whip, the whipping, you know, smart-aleck dialogue. And it's like, that shtick could fade out quickly, especially if it starts to get parodied more. And the, they're the parodies online. You have to look up on YouTube, Zeke, the, 
the Roy's order a pizza. It's so funny. It is such a funny video. But like the more things like that happen, that and it's same for Christopher Nolan. Mm. For us, Tenet felt like a Christopher Nolan film on drugs, where it was exaggerated to the point where I finally get the complaints about other Nolan films is that they're too cold and mm-hmm. don't make sense and the dialogue's inaudible. And it's like, for me, Tenet was the one that actually took all those things to the edge. It was like, I get the complaint now. Yeah. And that can happen to John Wick and that could happen to Succession. Thankfully, it's going to end. I've definitely come around on that. I'm glad it's ending this season. Yeah. Because I was really worried about that before season four aired, but... Would well, you want to talk about that for a bit? I think we should, and... Because we... we, I think it's worth... No, even not talking from a spoiler point of view, we won't but from a cultural it, no. point of view, did we see the best episode of television in the last decade, at least? I I think the answer is probably definitely yes. Um, and of course, we're referring to the third episode of season four. We won't spoil Connor's it wedding. further than that. But my God. And, and it was so tricky because last week we did, you know, our podcast last week on No Country for Old Men. And you were one episode behind. I thank God I watched it like as soon as it went live on binge, so I didn't even cross the spoiler territory. It was genuine shock how that episode plays out. And then us doing the podcast, I was like, I can't talk to you about it. Yeah, <laughs> you're talking about where you think the season's gonna go, and it's like, dude, it's about to 180 and so I, hard. And I've got, I've got you because I've, I've, I've got. And you now it's the other way around today. I've yes, episode four. I haven't seen episode four yet. So after after we wrap this podcast, we jump. I'm jumping right into it, but. Uh, I think it's worth just talking because, like you said, I that episode. I mean, from a writing standpoint, of course, the performances are just like out of this world. I mean, we talk when we talk about like the Oscars, it always feels like there's always one or two clear winners, or or like a, in, in in any given category. It's like I I wouldn't mind this film or this film winning, and everything else I wouldn't care about. Television over the last several years is always like. Pretty much any show that I've watched that's up for a nomination, I'm like, mm. I can see it winning in its category. Like, the competition is so fierce and so strong. And it is it is this year, because you've got, like, Last of Us and the final season of Better Call Saul in contention. Uh, obviously, Barry, I think a new season's out, Ted Lasso. There's a lot going on. Mm. But, and I think the last two episodes of Stranger Things Season 4 is in contention this year as well. It is a competitive year. And yet, still, it's like, well, Succession is just going to win everything. Yeah, <laughs> going to win every award. It and and from a cliffhanger standpoint, in terms of what happens, and like there, there are already essays out there about you know the the subversion of expectation in terms of the things that unfold in this episode and at what point in the season and in the series they unfold, but also the fact that the headline isn't just the shocking event because the majority of the episode is about the reaction to that event. Absolutely. And it has a lot to say and about... basically just that event playing. It's a complete contemporary... Epi- I mean, all the episodes are contemporary, but... Yeah. And there are very few time jumps over the, even the whole four seasons. Sure. But um, we've always talked about normally that boil-over episodes, episode sort of seven, eight, in the, the last two or three seasons. So mm-hmm. to have it in your third episode of your final season... There's, there's always like a build up to the third to second to last episode of the yeah. season, and then sort of the the calm aftermath of the storm in the last episode of the season. That's how television sort of evolved. And instead of the big explosive of it happening in the finale, it happens like a couple of hours before the finale. And but this then is th- real this, life. This yeah, it's real life, life waits on nothing. And <laughs> I think retrospectively, I I do love that everyone universally has 
sort of embrace the episode and and is crediting it for being a fantastic episode because to make such a bold decision Mm. creatively, I mean, that didn't work for Game of Thrones, but then Game of Thrones had the problem where they built too much up Mm. and they had to get solved too much too quickly. So that, you know, things like that Night King, like, you know, you've created this enemy that's going to bring about basically a, the apocalypse yeah. and he dies in episode th- three or four of a sixth ep- six episode last season or something right. like that a seven episode because so- there was so much build up to it but look even then i still think there's a way to do that and a good example is the last season of medical soul and that that's a prequel so there's not really that much mm. of a surprise element at least for the the um the legacy characters or the characters we know of already they're still like you know kim wexler and howard and nacho they're still characters that weren't in breaking bad and there's the the driving question of why weren't they in Breaking Bad and do they die or do they run away? Does this happen? Does that happen? But there are no deaths in the last, I think, five episodes of that show. The big, big climax of that whole story is the sixth to last episode of the series. And then everything else kind of just feels like an epilogue. So there's ways to do it where it's satisfying. Mm. I think in the Game of Thrones example, and I can't attest to this because I still haven't seen Game of Thrones, I might, mm. I might one day. I might watch it. I don't know if it's worth it. Oh, it's definitely worth it. Okay. You you do feel a bit robbed with the ending, right? But first, but, but six from what seasons, I understand, right. though, is what you're talking about with like, oh, it happens in this episode, and there's so much build up to this event. It sounds like the event itself just wasn't very satisfying, yeah. As opposed to when it happened, and and that's the thing, you know, the driving. I mean, the driving question is in the title of the show, Succession. Yes. Who is going to succeed? Yes the you know the patriarch of this great american family and the the driving question of that show was when and how is that going to happen mm. and the reality is and this this show although is you know it's it's real life the way they're talking and stuff it's not fictionalized or anything and things happen in real life don't they i mean and suddenly the balls in the court and the but the corporate wheel keeps moving yeah, but there's there's a way to do it. There is a way where you can. I mean, it's all obviously scripted and dramatized, and it's all obviously it's presented as as very grounded in the the documentary, you know, whip pan camera movement and the performances. And I mean, it's all elevated and heightened to an extent. But you're right that there's something about the way they captured a moment in time that feels so real and feels so authentic. It's very Sorkin, Be- isn't it? And part of it is because we've never really seen any other show do it this way. Mm. There's so few shows that build up to this kind of climax, or in, in this case, really don't build up to in a way, but still pull it off because there's something real and relatable within the way the execution. Well, it's like of the, the episode, the fact that shots feel like you know that in that particular episode, some of the notable things that make it just feel that little mm. bit more real is how it it's just all natural lighting, all the all right. the light like it doesn't feel like there are scenes where characters are having these massive emotional moments but because they're in a a dark sort of dark Mm. back room obviously they're not turning on a light like it's not a well-lit well-composed room it's just a room they're in and i've always liked that about the show that it it doesn't like it a lot has a lot of natural lighting and stuff and and because it's and like you said with the whip pan cameras and stuff but i noticed it because it would be like times it'd be the characters that it look like you know they're having these massive moments but their face is kind of quite dark mm. because they're in a shadowed room yeah it's like well it's it's expressive 
Yeah. You know, and I, and I don't want to comment on how many lights I think are are not in there. I think you're probably right in the sense that a lot of these were giant takes where the camera would go in and out of certain rooms and it would have to hide. Um, I couldn't believe that. I didn't realize it's still shot on film. I did not realize that until the most recent featurette they put out. But you're right, because there's so much going in and out of rooms with the camera. It's like, where can they hide the lights? There's so few places to hide yet. Do you have to rely yeah. on the light that's coming through the windows? And yes, I, I, that's definitely valid. Yeah, I think it was definitely worth mentioning um, Connor's wedding as a very incredibly important moment in, in television history. I generally believe that. And I'm a little upset. You pointed it out that the it lost its 10 out of 10 IMDb rating. 9.9. Makes me very sad. Because I think... I, I mean, I'm the biggest Breaking Bad fan there is. And I think it it totally deserves to sit up there with Fuzzy Mandius. Yeah. So uh, it is what it is. But well done to the whole crew, cast, Jesse Armstrong, Mark Mylord, everyone. Just phenomenal, phenomenal work. That that's This is what it's all about, Zeke. Mm. And this is, like I think, another reason why television is just so appealing to creatives that you see more directors and actors and everyone going to television instead of film. And we, we talked about this endlessly that there's more creative freedom, but it's just like yeah. the water cooler effect you can have with characters that you get to develop over several years at a time. Oh yeah. It's just unrivaled what you can do in that scene. So great, shout out. Great, epi- great performance from Brian Cox in that episode. <laughs> we love him. We love him very much. Um, he did, he, he did an autobiography recently. Really? Yeah. Talks a lot of shit about people in it. Apparently. <laughs> Nice. Uh, I know. Nice. Well done, Zeke. Were there any, uh, any other films you saw in the past uh, week? Yeah, I caught. Um, speaking of television, yes, television's Josh Radner. Um, to quote, was it? Was, what's the quote in uh, BoJack Horseman where he makes a Radner dig? Oh, I don't know. Oh, so good. Another um, excellent TV show. I actually watched his. I think it was his directorial debut, but it's definitely directed by him and stars him. Called Liberal Arts with Elizabeth Olsen. And him, sort of about... A title. Liberal arts. <laughs> I already have an idea what this is going to be about. Yeah, I mean, it's about a guy in his mid-30s, goes back to his hometown, sort of has like a a romantic relationship with, obviously, the campus that he sort of grew up in. He's sort of in that mm-hmm. middle of the mid-30s mo, and, of course, develops a relationship with a very young Elizabeth Olsen. Uh-oh. And a bit naughty. Um, but, yes. <laughs> no, it was a good... It's a good film it's a fine film yeah i've always meant to watch it because it looked good and i really like elizabeth olsen and i can that's yeah she's definitely one of my favorite actresses out there so she's easy to watch um it was a fine film had interesting moments in it some definitely redeeming qualities great scenes like they use classical music which i think actually elevates they sort of discuss like a lot of university sort of conversations like mm. the the when did it come out uh 2012 so okay over 10 years ago now and it was interesting because it's obviously it's in the middle of that's sort of towards the back end of his how i met your mother um show run time i mean that finished in 2015 so it's sort of good to see this sort of project obviously olsen at that time is on the precipice of doing Scarlet Witch. Yeah, She's I reckon maybe there. a year away from signing a contract. Because um, so, her first appearance was in 20... Oh, wait, no, 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 no. 2015 Avengers, but she's in a post credit scene. 
beforehand. Yes. So so I reckon by 2012, she was definitely in talks or was about to sign a contract. So, and she's great. I think she's a very natural actor and I like the nuances she does with her voice. And Radner's pretty much just Ted in this film. Like, <laughs> um, maybe a bit more toned down, but... And a bit more contemplative, but basically all the comments are like, "Oh, Ted goes back to university." <laughs> um, so is it kind of that Zach Braff sort of? Uh, oh yeah, Garden State. That's a great example. Yeah, okay, yeah, cool. Zach Braff to Garden We're State. We're gonna be talking about him later in the show. Man, it's been so many years. I remember doing the uh, 365 challenge and putting that review up for Garden State. You know what's annoying? It came up on the um, uh, framed website garden set and i knew i'm like oh that's the zach braff film oh, and i couldn't figure the name and of course i failed i knew exactly what it was i just forgot it was called garden state but it's an interesting film but jake that's okay what did you catch uh quite a few things i had another movie night at andy's this past saturday it's been a while just a while. keep delaying and delaying second. and delaying and part of that was skin and blister as well so but my apologies to everyone not that many people made it <laughs> this weekend, but we did a double feature because the goal of this one in terms of what films we should vote for was uh, to pick one film and then to pick a, mostly a genre film and then pick a second film that is a parody of that film in particular. Mm. And then we went with... I, this might have been my selection, actually. I don't even remember. That's how long ago it was. Scream followed by Scary Movie. Oh. And it's funny, that, it's funny that I even made that comparison. I did not realise... It's been a while since I've seen Scary Movie. I didn't realize that the film followed the Scream structure like, to like beat for beat. Like there's other there's you know um, I know what you did last summer and there's actually a Blair Witch reference in there. There you go. There you go. Um, so it, there's several other films they're parodying in it, but the actual structure of it, of it is Scream. And what was really weird watching them back to back. First off, it's I, I mean Scary Movie is it's over twenty years old. It's a raunchy comedy. So you're going to get a couple of jokes here and there that's making fun of the, the slasher horror genre, which is weird that it picks Scream as its reference because Scream in and itself is also kind of a parody on the slasher genre or a deconstruction meta version of the slasher genre that Wes Craven, he himself pioneered that genre. We talk a bit about it on our Nightmare on Elm Street episode. Mm. I think that was 145, if I remember correctly, episode 145. Uh, so it's already a bit weird that they're doing a parody on a film that's kind of a parody already. But then on top of that, it's a raunchy comedy from the early 2000s. So most of the jokes are really transphobic, fatphobic, homophobic, racist. Yeah, those those movies it's, have an age for <laughs> They certainly do not. There's, there is a character, there is a trans character whose name is Ms. Man. Just, just think about that for a minute. I mean, every every now and then you still get, you know, what's up? That's a classic. That is an unbeatable classic. <laughs> but then you could say, my thing is, it's what's that up? it's that time and place thing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean... I'm not I'm not saying, like, we should ban it and, and yeah, delete it. Can't, you may, I mean, it's there are problem. people that were like, I can't believe this is on Stan. Like, the Stan haven't got rid of this. It's like, well, there's, there's an could, understanding of what, the context. We're going to do the same with American Pie. Oh, exactly. It's, like, it's... Slap the bumper at the front, you know. This is like the Disney thing. Yes. You know, this represents such and such. These are not values. We... That'll probably, you know, And that'll probably be what happens. I'm perfectly fine with them doing that on a streaming service, slapping it at the front, giving that context. Because yeah, that's just good business. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's what <laughs> smart business. Yeah, I wanted to mention that because uh, more so than all those jokes, it is the the fun the the funny fact that Scream and Scary Movie are both parodies, mm. and so obviously one just takes it to the the complete extreme. Uh, but the other film I saw, and I also went to the cinemas Zeke to see the Super Mario Brothers movie. Now, of course, this is the 2023 mm. animated one, not the uh, 90s uh, steampunk live-action version. It's uh, also got a contender for to rival Natu Natu's. Uh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, Zeke, I... Musical number. I want, I want to ride the wave on this seat because I think Peach's deserves a best original score sorry best original song oscar at least a nomination at least yeah, so is it good the, uh, well look uh or is it more just the, it's it's the very it's very jack black yeah. it's very it's it's like if you know one of the the sillier songs in school of rock got nominated for best original song which it, it's a little bit of a meme but at the same time it's like well i feel like giving jack black an oscar for a song is not that wild I really, I think no, it's time I mean, we give him one for that. I, I was going to say, I think like a lot of people, there's a lot of love for his tenacious D. Exactly. Sort of caricature. He is just the biggest man baby, isn't he? Like, isn't but no, he? Not in a bad way. He, he, he's like a man child. Man baby implies he's like whiny and Oh, no, 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 and... no. I mean, I, we we talked about School of Rock. We, did we loved the show. Jack we Black. loved it. I've, I've always found him very funny. I mean... I like that he, it would be nice to... I can't remember a film of him he's ever played a serious character. It would be interesting to see him in a Jim Carrey-esque... There absolutely is... Oh, there's got to be. King Kong. That's oh, a serious he's, role. He's comical in that, though. Well, the, I would say the saddest scene... I just I don't know why I just wrote funny in the search, but I meant to look at Jack Black. See, he's that funny that I just write up funny and he appears. To be fair, the saddest scene in that 2005 King Kong film is when he's break, camera breaks and he's like upset about it. That's that's a sad scene. Um all right, I'm looking at it. He's in Ice Age. Oh yeah. Obviously Kung Fu Panda, the newer Jumanji films, Anchorman. He's got a great little bit in Anchorman. Shark Tale, The Cable Guy, Natural Libre. Oh yeah, he's the narrator in Apollo 10 and a half. Yes. I forgot about that. He's a great choice so, for that too. To your point. Okay, he's in Walk Hard, which I haven't seen. Do you remember him in War Card, Zeke? No. no. It must be like a tiny... must be a small role. Interesting. Be Kind, We Wine. These are all... I mean, you're right. There are so, so few examples of him doing like a serious role. The closest you're going to get is King Kong. Where he's not a clown in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. But, but that's good. Like, But overall, what did you think of the film? Yeah, so... Like I said, it's su- it's a complete deviation from the 90s steampunk live-action version. So it's kind of like done its complete 360 full-circle moment of in trying to be the opposite of that film and ends up, which in and itself was the opposite of the Mario video game aesthetic we know. We've, we're full-circle now. It's very colourful and vibrant and very child-friendly. I, the cinema was packed with kids and parents and people of all ages and what was really strange, I was baffled by this. We were laughing way harder than any of the kids were. And more so, not because there are there are adult, there's adult humor and jokes spreading, including the Peaches song, where it's like, I mean, that's really funny because we know the context of like, it's Jack Black and we know his musical history, especially in film. And there's like those extra layers 
to what they're doing there. And the fact that this Nintendo film, and you would think Nintendo was so strict and so particular about what they're going to, because, you know, the last Mario film they were so disappointed in, it's like, they're, they're going to be super controlling. And yet there was still plenty of room in this film to have like the meta Jack Black jokes. There's this little ghost character that's just like completely nihilistic and making jokes about, not jokes, but like literally wishing death upon itself. And it's like, we're laughing like, this is a theater full of little children <laughs> making some pretty dark jokes. So I, I loved all that. And there's like needle drops for... Especially not- when you look... But if you look at the, the cast mm. of it, you know, you've got Chris Pratt, Charlie Day. Yep. And um, the yeah. Michael Key. And it, yep. And it's... You know, those Jack are Black, not... Seth Rogen, they're not, and they're not young... They're not kid comedic. Like, they're normally not associated with kid comedies. No. That's definitely for the adults to like, ah, haha, that's funny. I recognize that voice. And I will say, though, other than Seth Rogen, I actually really enjoyed all the voices, including Chris Bratz. I had absolutely no problem with it. Charlie I will, is pretty I, funny. I, oh, Charlie he's goes. great. Well, even like that Mario Luigi dynamic, where a lot of the films about Mario are like having to save Luigi because he has like an older brother care and responsibility for him. Like, that's all really sweet. And that's what's so surprising is I went into this pretty pretty pessimistic because I had heard anyone who liked the Mario film was all mm. like, oh, there were so many references. There were so many references. I love references. I was like, oh, well, that's not that's not a good thing. <laughs> that's not a good thing in and itself. Mm. And what I realized watching the film, like, do people just think references include, like, the iconography, the, the worlds, the outfits, the, the music cues... The sound cues, you know, like the blah 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 when they're going through the pipe, and it's like those aren't references. That's like part of the aesthetic of Mario. Yeah, I don't consider. Yeah, every now and then, like there's a scene where he's playing, uh, I think a Nintendo sixty four. So that's a reference. That's like a nod and a wink to the audience. But these are him wearing a specific outfit or like a specific catchphrase. I'm sorry, those aren't really references because that's part of the the law. Of Mario, which is a weird way to phrase it, I guess. No, I agree. So that surprised me in that sense that I wasn't actually that thrown off by the references. And all the negative stuff I'd heard was that the story's too simplistic. And I'm like, it's fine. It's it's perfectly fine. Well, what's what's Mario, wrong with a simple story? Exactly. It's, it's a like, children's film. It's a perfect hero's journey arc. Perfect. You could easily teach it in any school using this film as like the prime mm. example of how a hero's journey, reluctant hero, enters into a mysterious world. The fact that he has physical challenges to overcome, which includes beating uh, Donkey Kong in a, in a challenge, the obstacle course that Princess Peach makes him go through, but then there's the emotional challenge of his self-worth because everyone's talking about, uh, oh, Mario, you're short. He's a short king, by the way. Everyone just know that. Mario is a short king. But, the, you know, that, that he's, like, pathetic and, like, he's never going to amount to anything, but he ends up being the hero of the day. It's like, that all tracks. That's all fine. Mm. I thought people were saying the story was bad because... Like, there are no challenges, and things just happen, and Mario didn't need to be in the story. I'm like, none of those things are true. It's a perfectly fine, servable story that kids will enjoy, and evidently, me and everyone else I went, who were also in their mid-twenties, also enjoyed it. I was surprised how much I enjoyed this Mario movie. I know, it was great. Gotta love it. But, that's about it for me, Zeke, and films I've seen in the past week. I only caught one other film. I caught it today. Um, okay. So the 2022 film directed and once again, another star in directing. And oh. we've gone from Josh Randner, who was a Orts TV star, to another yes. Orts TV star in BJ Novak. Oh! Um, Writer, director, this is, BJ Novak. Yep. 
uh, Vengeance is what the film's called. Sorry, writer, actor, director, actor. Um, and it centers around a guy trying to make a podcast. Um, well, we know all about that. Oh, I know, <laughs> I know. So we should get BJ on the show. Clearly, he's a fan of podcasts. Mm. Um, no, it, it centers around a journalist and podcaster who travels from New York City to very rural West Texas to investigate the death of a girl he was hooking up with. So, oh. Novak's character is a bit of a womanizer. He's yep. early 30s womanizer. He's a career journalist for The New Yorker. Um, but kind of wants to get out of writing more traditional and break into this podcasting market. So... <laughs> Um, don't blame him. It's a, you know, as being it's a great place to be. Being the number two Australian film podcast <laughs> out there, um, according to so, I can't remember what even some website, very obscure website. Some website said it. Um, <laughs> we should get that quote. We should put that quote. Yeah, in the number two show trailer some website. Some website. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, it's, it's actually guy. a really good film. You know, it's got like nice. Um, we like that. It's got some pretty good uh, actors in there. Um, I'm a big fan of... I mean, Ashton Kutcher's in it, and he actually has oh, cool. a really good role in the film. But it's essentially sort of what happens is he... Uh, Jerry from Succession's in it, actually. Ooh, J. Smith Cameron. Yes. Emmy nominee, J. Smith Cameron. Yeah, she's... um, And it's just so funny, because I watched the episode of Succession, then watched the film, and I went, oh, Jerry! Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Jerry's here. And of course, she's like... Uh, so what happens is... He gets a call from the brother and and they get revealed that this girl's been murdered or this mm. girl's died and this girl's inferred that Ben, this character, is her boyfriend. So she goes he goes to the town and finds out things aren't quite right. Um and it's actually ends up becoming a little bit of everything. So he finds himself getting integrated, you know, he's obviously from this massive metro New York City to this middle of nowhere comes yeah he starts podcasting about the family who all agree to be a part of it and the podcast sort of evolves and it's actually a really good journalism film because the story sort of changes as the investigation into this child mm. like into this woman's death and discovering who she is as a person because it starts from being sort of a cross-section um of america like and the downfall of sort of that aspect, and then it evolves into kind of a murder investigation podcast, yep. and it's sort of, it's interesting because it's kind of talking about how the creative process takes many different roads yep. in journalism, and you never really know what you're going to end up with. It's not black and white all the time. And that's why The French Dispatch is Wes Anderson's best live-action film. Yeah. It's great. Suck it. It is. You it's losers. Fantastic. But it's so true. Don't and understand. It's like, it's and obviously Novak's in correspondence with his producer for this show, and they they're having these phone conversations about what they think the show should be on, and mm. that's actually really interesting. As he gets, you know, develops a relationship with all of her sisters and brothers and her mother, um, <laughs> he's been around the block. Just yeah, he just like gets to know all of them. It ends up being a very like warm film, but at the same time, it's a great like low budget film. Yeah. Um, I was really impressed. I think from a like the BJ Novak directing point of view, there's some great monologues, but I mean, there's nothing like in there, there's there's nothing in there that's explicitly like it's a good story. And right. he he did write the story, and I think it's actually a really really solid film. But mm. um, yeah, nothing like to ring home about his direction because I think he's relied on you know all of the actors with 
the the larger dialogue obviously mm. i'm pretty sure they're just friends and stuff like that and yeah well i feel like the like him and action could that sounds like a weird friendship that probably that has been around probably for exists a while. that yeah. yeah that's that kind of makes sense um to me so yeah it was honestly really pleasant film i watched it on uh binge what was that binge yeah um, it's on binge and netflix so check it out it actually is i mean it's seems to be pretty positive reviews on it but it's actually a really good sort of easy 90 minutes to watch and it's not it's so interesting because it frames itself as a dark comedy which i would say at times it's just it's it's mostly just more an investigative so probably more a mystery right it's not a mystery comedy maybe it has no. It definitely has a lot of jokes in there. Is it a very good film? And yeah. he's such an interesting actor. I'm looking at the poster Ryan. now, and obviously the um, cover photo on Letterbox is B.J. Nova, but he's got like a big cowboy hat. Yes. And the poster is an enlarged cowboy hat, sort of being held up by a big tree next to a cactus, and it's very surrealistic imagery. And and you know, yeah, yeah, right. I'm going to keep calling him Ryan, even though his character's name is Ben. Um, sort of looking up at the hat. Mm. It's actually very similar to Bojack looking up at the big balloon of himself, mm. except it's just a cowboy hat instead. Yeah. It's a good movie. Check it out <laughs> if you want to watch something that's... Uh, the twist at the end's like, really, I was like, whoa, that was clever. Like, oh. I thought it was a clever film. So It turned out his podcast only got 17 weekly active listeners. That's which, a... Which is a... I, shout no, out to those 17 people. I will say, Zeke, Yeah, and we'd very, very scarcely ever talk about our podcast from like a performance standpoint or like numbers, yes. views, any of We really couldn't care less about that. No. We, we would have got sponsorships 200 episodes ago if we really cared about that. Yeah. But the fact that we've... Every now and then, I do divide number of episodes we have by... Um, or sorry, number of views, views by number of listeners. And like overall listens i should say or downloads they call it and the fact that it's been consistently 16 to 17 almost the entire lifespan of our podcast which is coming up on five years sooner than we know that is impressive it's like sure it's not growth but like you much like people start a podcast and give up after 10 episodes yeah the audience also kind of lose interest after the first you know initial wave of excitement of oh my mm-hmm. god you just started a podcast the fact that 222 episodes later we're still at that same number of general... That's crazy. It's good. It's true. It's, it's very crazy. true. crazy. Because we don't really advertise this podcast. No. Only just got a social media page. Which, if you have not liked or followed yet, at Cinema Sideshow on Instagram. Advertising. You got to do it. You are right. Like, And it's one of those things like... I've always said, man, I've got one day, and I guess this is kind of career updates anyway, so... We're this, slowly... We've moved into that moved category. Moved into it, yeah. Um, <laughs> I always said, it's like, it would have been great, it'd be great to one time sit down and be like, oh, do we... How do we move about marketing, marketing the show? Or, But it, it's one of those things that I feel like you have to do from the, the get-go nowadays. You've got to just yeah create that, that goal very early on. I mean, we're, like you said, nearly five years in. And I honestly just see it as an outlet to continually talk about movies yeah. and and talk to people that we have on the show about their movies and sort of how we're moving through our life. I mean, if I ever did another podcast, I would definitely push that more. But it's you got to be 
you know, we have a very good structure on our show, but we don't have a time limit. So some episodes are significantly longer than others. And yeah, I don't. Um, I mean, some I listen to some podcasts that go insane. They started an hour and a half, and then in less time than we've been doing this, they moved to four or five hour long podcasts. I'm glad we never gone to that excessive amount of no. <laughs> like two and a half hours being like our absolute max per episode and usually on like really big like episode 200 or a golden chalked up award episode mm-hmm. there's always a good reason for it to be a chunky two plus hour episode yeah yeah i mean if they wanted us to sell shirts i'd sell shirts <laughs> the 17 listeners we could sell 17 shirts per hey 17 shirts per week yeah at a decent price that's something zeke yeah that's so if you would like Cinema Sideshow merch, please let us know at, at Cinema Sideshow on Instagram. <laughs> there you go. Now, what's cool, Zeke, moving into career updates, I've been anticipating, because like, I've worked on quite a few short films over the last... I think since we graduated uni, I, I kind of... Films I worked on pre-uni graduation and then post-uni graduation I kind of are in two mm. different frame of minds. And virtually every film that I've worked on after graduating uni has taken sometimes years to get finished or the post-production stage of it. There's a film I worked on, Work From Home. Mm-hmm. It's been two and a half years Hasn't and that still not finished. That's insane to me. So with that in mind, and like even Chapman Station, it took well over a year before we they screened that publicly. And So with all that in mind, I was anticipating a really long post-production cycle mm-hmm. for Skin and Blister. And we're already in fine cut. And this past Saturday, I gave Blake the fine cut with the film leader and the time codes and everything he needs for uh, a score to start putting the score together for the film. That's crazy. And it's very exciting because we wrapped a month and a bit ago. So we've got a Always the next the next logical step heads, is to sort of getting yeah well it's I mean it's great that it's moving along so nicely yeah um, but then you're at that point now where now you've got to start talking about. Festival campaigns. Mm. And we got to you got to develop a um we got to develop a portfolio for that. I think my internal thinking was, it'd be nice to hit Revelation, but they've already closed the gates on that for their July program, oh, which nice. I was shocked by. But it it really doesn't matter. Like as long as it takes, as long as it takes, and what whatever the next festival is, you know, Cinefest. Yeah, Cinefest Oz. Yeah, it's okay. Maybe that's the next one. Yeah, we have a whole year, Zeke. To lap around. And, well, that's it. I WA mean, made for WA that whole... WA yeah. made film festival yeah. at the end of the year. And Plenty of opportunities. What an exciting time. It is. Zeke. Yeah. You've been, you've been writing some stuff. I have. It's definitely... I'm, we're in that creative cocoon again, I think. I th- <laughs> it's such an interesting... Because this show is such a barometer of our careers as filmmakers. Yeah. And obviously, you know, I'm a teacher now. So... The last two years of the show, there hasn't been a lot of creativity apart from kind of working on other people's projects, sure. um, or being on this show and or talking to you off off the show. And I think only now that I've found my groove as a teaching, you know, I'm established at a school. I really enjoy it. I'm feeling more confidence in, in that job. It's allowed me to kind of return back to the well of mm. creating stuff again. And it's been really nice, you know. I I gave you a proof of concept for a film, did you um, did? and got your feedback on that. And I'm what 
page 14 into mm. this script now. And this is the first time I think I've ever written... I'm aiming for a feature script, so... Yeah. Um, it'll be crazy if I can get that done before the end of the school holidays, even just the first draft riddled with errors. Like, that's fine. Um, <laughs> as long as it's on it's paper. All, it's it's down, and I think it's a really promising film. It's it's coming up to the right time when it needs to be made. I mean, right. this is a film that could easily be made in the next year or so um, with the right rigorous planning and, and stuff. Yeah. You know, maybe running the, the January circuit again, basically. Shoot your films in January. That's all um, I can tell anyone. But the thing, that's the other thing, Zeke, because it's not even just writing. It's like you, you were very considerate of the production context of where you would shoot it, mm-hmm. how you would shoot it, you know, which departments will really need to get, you know, their fingers deep in the script. And yep. you're, you're considering all of those production assets or aspects while writing the script as well, which I think is very important. Yeah, and it's... It's a, um, but I, I feel like I've approached that ever since... That's how I approach film. I, I approach it from a first AD point of view right. <laughs> and a producer point of view. And I've done that since since Faces. Because um, when we did Faces, we had a lot of things kind of fall in place for us quite... Mm. We're quite lucky. Um, we had a very good crew. Yeah. Faces. And after that, yeah, exactly. And then following films, it was like, oh, we're going to start meticulously thinking about things a little bit more. Mm. And then by the time third year rolled around and then Jack was like, you know, a friend of the show, Jack Bett, um, you know, we were presented with that hitched opportunity, but that took a lot of planning and yeah. thinking about practically how to shoot it. I mean, we've just come off a, sh- a film with rain machines mm. yeah, that had to be created and... I think it's really interesting because I like thinking about stuff that way because, one, it hopefully will end up reducing the cost of the project. <laughs> but it also, I think it allows you to focus more on, because it's such a personable film. I mean, this is probably the most I've ever put myself into a film. Right. Um, not to say it's not universal. It's I think it we've created a, a goal um, and a cast and their motivations that... It'll be very interesting to see how it all plays out, mm. but it's it's kind of exciting because it's something that I. It'll be great when it's even. I'll just be stoked to have a, a finished screenplay, yeah. like a full. I mean, my dream has always been before the age of forty, I get to write or direct a feature length film, mm. and then have a premiere night. I want my disconnected you moment. <laughs> um, you got plenty of time before you're forty, mate. I don't know, I'm 26 this year. Lifetime moves quickly. <laughs> Blink and this podcast is five years old now. Oh, so. God. Yeah, that's true. That's um, true. And, what, three girlfriends later? <laughs> <laughs> um, I always laugh. That's actually in the disconnected commentary track, which I think is still only on the DVD. I don't think there's any other way to listen to it. Maybe Vimeo gives you an alternate track. That'd be cool. That'd be cool if Vimeo let you do that. But I remember joking about that where... I, I went through two girlfriends during the production of Disconnected. So there's like there's like references or clues or mm. in, in the film from both of them, which I found quite funny. But, yeah, it's I mean that's life. You you a lot of the people in your life at any of those given moments, they inject themselves into I, I mean I mean Kirsty, she's literally in Skin and Blister. <laughs> she's got a cameo. Yeah. But she's it's like great. She's and it would be really it would be cool to even 
you know, obviously we have a rap party. Well, that's probably another thing. We have a rap yeah, party this rap weekend. Rap parties this weekend. Um, I got. I. I. I'm keeping it really close to the chest. There's one thing that I've that I'm ordering for this rap party, which <laughs> I think our crew will find very amusing and very satisfying. I'm going to hope to come a bit later. Yeah. If I can. Oh, if you can make it, you can make it. Yeah. I really want. It's just annoying, isn't it? Because yeah. I had no clue that Cat Empire were playing that night. Completely, yeah. like, not in my brainwave. It's crazy, isn't it? Because it's like, we. I feel like we were umming and ahhing for such a long time about going. And I yeah. just decided, you know I didn't what? Re- I had no I idea that's when it was, yeah. Yeah. But, Rio uh, Prison, though, so it should be pretty cool. Yeah. But, yes. But, hey, that's not too far, either. No. It's not too far from the rap party, so. That's what I was thinking. Go from one to the other very quickly, but, yeah. No, that's exciting. I'm very, I'm very excited to see the rest of your pages this week. Yeah, well, you've read the say, first bit. You're I've the only read... one who has read it. Ooh. And you said it's not crap. So <laughs> that's that's nice to know my writing uh, hasn't gotten worse. Uh, I think my dialogue's gotten better, but I've really done a lot of, like, it's, I, Yeah, you can kind of tell that you've really, really paced it out and fought it out, how the dialogue... It's so funny I mean, when you It's have probably to... the most important thing in the script. Oh yeah, is it's the, the lynch. It's the linchpin for this script. <laughs> if it's I mean, bad. imagine if like the before sunrise dialogue was bad. Like, it, the movie's over. Oh, that's it's what done. I, well, I mean, that's what I I, I read that script because I was like, I need to see how he did Ooh, it. Um, that's sick. I want to read it. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Like it's just, and you just watch. I was like, oh, I guess I'll have to rewatch this film. What a shame. <laughs> um, I just um, yeah, but. It's really exciting. Um, I liked the proof of the proof of concept I sent you. Had like a an oil painting of people at a dinner. Dude, I, it's so good. I told you that's like a Criterion collection. I was very happy with it. DVD font. Yeah, I, I, it's AI generated. Oh no! So I went to <laughs> Dali oh, and no. put it in AI, and then you look at it, and then you tweak it in Photoshop. You know what we should do, Zeke, next year for the um, countdown for the decades. Yeah. Instead of putting a poll up for audiences to vote their favorite films, we should get an AI. What's it called? Something something chat. Chat GPT. Chat cheap GPT. Yeah, we should get that to write essays on the two films that we've submitted, and whichever writes the better essay, we have to cover that film on the podcast. <laughs> that that's not a bad ne- idea. That's next year. That's what we're gonna do. It's not a bad idea. <laughs> You know, we and you know we'll move into the second half of the show. But one day we should, in the first half of the show, is we should talk about maybe on an AI-related film, talk about what that could do for the sort of the film industry. Because I think that conversation it is scary is starting to creep in. Yeah, and to not address it or at least discuss it is I think it's an important conversation because yeah. I find that I, I mean I'm having that conversation with seventeen-year-olds. Mm. Who are you know? Obviously, they've got access to the internet. and They're not stupid. It's a very interesting world we're moving into. Um, but I think when it comes to things like script writing, AI will may be able to generate a script, but you it won't take the it's the heart in a script mm. that comes with someone human writing it. Yeah, that's it. And th- there's definitely a conversation we had about like what influence can you take from the write up. You know, if we get an AI to write up a logline or a story idea, and uh, that all that technology exists, it's scary. Yeah. Or it even gives you like images and illustrations of what that write up would be. Um, but I, I hope that it doesn't trump 
what you said, like the human spirit and... I don't think it can. Real human influence. Because it it doesn't act on emotion. It adds, it's a logic thinker, you yeah. know? But then we're getting into that her world too. Man, that would have been a good conversation to have when we did her. Um, yeah, no, I mean, hey, that was a while ago a now. Long, well, that was long before this. Yeah, We can do Ex Machina or something. Yes. You know, there's or, uh, something brand new. I'm sure there's plenty out there, Zeke. Absolutely. Well, I think it's time for us to move into our film of the week, the latest installment in our countdown through the decades, retrospective. I don't know if we still use retrospective. Sometimes we use it. It's the fourth ever countdown through the decades. Jake, (laughs) we're moving into out of the 21st century and back into the 20th century with the 1990s. But what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke, we're watching The Blair Witch Project. I just want to apologize to Mike's mom and Josh's mom and my mom. And I'm sorry. I was very naive. I am so, so sorry for everything that has happened. Because in spite of what Mike says now, it is my fault. Because it was my project. And I insisted. I insisted on everything. I insisted that we weren't lost. I insisted that we keep going. I insisted that we walk south. Everything had to be my way. And this is where we've ended up. And it's all because of me that we're here now. Hungry. And cold. And hunted. I love you, Mom. And Dad. I'm so sorry. Three film students vanish after travelling into a Maryland forest to film a documentary on their local Blair Witch legend, leaving only their footage behind. Ooh. Spooky. That, that, that That's a good thing, right? They, they've gone on to do bigger and better things. That's yeah. why they've only left the footage behind, right? Yeah. They didn't die. No, of course not. That's that's horrible. Yeah, that would be horrible. <laughs> that would be a sad ending. This film's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, what a great it is a fascinating film for a, a great example of a countdown through the decades sort of film. Um, it has started the whole, pretty much started the handy cam horror movement, and then just the handy cam film style. Mm. This is the godfather for that. And yeah, well, I mean, obviously so many of the examples we can think off the top of my head. I mean, you look at obviously the entirety of the Paranormal Activity franchise and Chronicle, um, Cloverfield. Searching. Searching. That's like its own thing now where yeah. it's more digital computer-based yeah. webcams. But it's all the same thing and unfriended. And, you know, there's a progression there. But what's so interesting, and Project, there is... Project X. Project X, there you go. That's another great one. Where it's, yeah, you, utilizing different genres through the found footage, I guess, medium, which is basically mockumentary. But of course, mockumentary in, in sites or infers that like it's mocking or parodying something, the yes. documentary style. And it kind of is. I mean, this film, most of my takeaway from this film was just the way 
they would utilize documentary codes and conventions and tropes and to to convince the audiences that this was all real. Mm -hmm. And I think without any of the production context, this is almost just a nothing film. This is something you would find on YouTube that's just an hour long of people wandering around. And if you don't have any... I mean, this is the thing, though. And it's like I alluded to earlier, where this film is pretty much a success from any, virtually any angle you look at it from. Did it scare you? It worked. Did it fool you into thinking this was real? It worked. Did it make a shitload of money? Yes, it did. That means it worked. Was the production... I mean, the production was a nightmare from the sound of at least for the three actors involved. Mm. <laughs> but was this something that they shot on the cheap and very quickly? Yes. It's so... From every one of those... Did it did it reinvigorate a whole new subgenre of horror? Yeah. Yes. It did all of these things. It's a surprisingly important film. And especially because of its viral marketing campaign in the early days of the internet... Where nowadays there's no way you could get away, no, with what they pulled. And here. it's funny because, like you said, if this film is made today, yep. it goes on YouTube, and people either mock it, <laughs> or yeah, they're just too skeptical because we just don't live in this world now where, you know, they're creating this film. This film's build basically as like someone has found this footage, haven't found yes. these people, and has put the, put together the actors character names they're both the exact same like yep. and, and you know they're all named heather mike and um can't remember what the third one's name was uh josh josh um they all go into hiding for like a year during the post-production and release of this film now this isn't the a completely new concept i didn't realize as much as i've always wanted to watch cannibal holocaust which is very similar to this in terms of like a pretend snuff film i didn't realize until today that is a found footage film I didn't realize that. And that's in 1980. That's almost 20 years prior to this. And not only is it a found footage film, but it also does the same thing of convincing its audience that the people that died in the film died in real life. So much that its director got arrested and the cast had to come forward and prove that they were still alive to get him out of jail. Craziness. But I think what's so important about Blair Witch and why people talk about this film more than Cannibal Holocaust is the age of the internet and... Like you said today, I think people are so skeptical mm-hmm. of... We literally just talked about AI a minute ago. Oh, yeah. Like, we as a species, um, we have every right to be critical and cautious and skeptical of every little bit of information we are fed. And for this film to entirely rely, not only in its marketing, but the film itself entirely rely on the thesis that it is real footage, that it is a real like snuff film, mm-hmm. for example, that these are real people that died, that we should feel uncomfortable watching this, is it, it, it's such a time and place moment where if this film came out at any other time, earlier or later, it wouldn't have worked. And that's why I said earlier, for a film that really only works for a very specific audience, people in a theatre... A communal viewing experience because this film's nowhere near as mm. scary if you're watching it by yourself. No. No way, shape, or form. And to also believe what you were seeing, which nowadays the myth is gone. And I will say, obviously, we were both around the same age, what, 12, 13, when mm-hmm. Paranormal Activity came out. Were you having those conversations about Paranormal Activity when the movie came out? Were you and your friends debating whether it was real or not? No. I, I think. It, I've, 
I personally, um, I've actually never seen Paranormal Activity. Oh, um, okay. I'm not a horror person, so a lot of this is I've never watched any of them. But yeah, I do agree with what you're saying. I, I think that this film's success comes from the fact that yeah, either sitting in a communal theater or the word of mouth, like having the yeah. conversations, like oh my god, I can't believe. Like, the fact it's given an R rating, and it's like... And, um, nothing happens. <laughs> but it, it almost feels like it's given the R rating because of the implied snuff film aspect to yes. it. Um, and at the time, people, like, they're just confused if this is real or not. And for that reason, you know, I mean, financially, it speaks for itself. Clearly, people went and saw it and went, I can't believe that. And then they've told four of their friends, and they've gone and seen yep. it. And then, and then we live in the world back then. It's that, or it's you know, over time, it's DVD rentals. Yeah, you know. my understanding is this film was huge on VHS yes. and DVD, and I could imagine so because it blurs those lines because it's such an amateur, amateurly made documentary by yeah. three aspiring film students. It just has that feeling, and especially even the the. First 15 or so minutes, they're in the town mm-hmm. of Maryland and they're interviewing some of the residents there. And those yeah. interactions feel so organic. Mm. And just like they've gone up and been like, hey, can you be in this documentary that we're doing on the... Um, and I don't know. If, I assume those piece to cameras are just actors. So this um, is part of the... Manip- and I didn't realise how much manipulation was being made uh, to the actors during the filming because they were legitimately lost in the woods half the time very little interaction with the crew. Um, and one of my favorite little facts that I didn't want to mention earlier is that they would get fed less food each progressive mm. day of the shoot. So their their insanity and their fear, you know, when the tent's shaking, that's all legitimate. They're not given warnings about any of these things that are going to happen. It's an incredibly loose script. And to your point about the people in the town, I think they were uh, either hired or asked to participate in the movie but the actors didn't know that. So there's always at least one leg forward in terms of the authenticity where the actors are interviewing other actors, not realizing that they're acting. And I also think that the three main actors believed that the Blair Witch legend was a true, even though they're making a fake movie, but that the legend was real and that the people they're interviewing also believe in the legend. So there's just so many examples behind the scenes of this manipulation that actually feeds the performances because I actually think the performances are very good in this film there's a lot of screaming mm. and, uh, and they and they can be very annoying at times but I it I mean that's half the reason this film works well because they're just people I mean it's interesting because it's like I'm even looking at the trivia here like the fact that Heather Donahue faced considerable backlash as a result of this role and it what does that mean by backlash? Well, though? that's what I, I'm confused. That, that almost makes me want to follow it up more. What does it mean by backlash? Because yeah. the character's really frustrating or annoying, and Perhaps, people believe that yeah. that was the actual person. Like that's that that's that wrestler thing too. Like yeah. you believe that Hulk Hogan's like Hulk Hogan is on TV, and <laughs> well, um, that's even more strange because it's like if she's getting backlash, that means the people talking to her know that she didn't die, which means they know it's a fabricated story. So that kind of goes into that weird immersion where you're right, there's people that watch wrestling and they, they buy into the character so much that's how they treat them in real life. And I, I guess we see that all the time. I, I know like actors in Game of Thrones, I'm sure, were like treated like badly because of their character's portrayal and things like that. Mm. But that that's like an extra layer of weird to me because like you're literally talking to her. 
So you know it's fake. You know she didn't die. It's in it's a very house. interesting, isn't it? Because <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, we can talk about the ending, but like obviously, like you said, that having that manipulation there, that one foot in front of it, and just creating that crabbiness, the paranoia. I mean. They were on strict walking paths, so when they got right. to the campsites at night, it was at night time. But, yeah. um, you know, when you think about that, you know, obviously they're doing, you know, they're staying in character for the whole eight days of the shoot, right. but their character is essentially just themselves as a person. <laughs> I mean, they're all actors, but they're playing filmmakers. They're just kind of playing something in the same field. And obviously, yeah, like you said, they're making this film that they know cognitively that it's a horror film but and they probably know like all the weird things happening when they wake up they've they've got the pylons of um like all the rocks all the, the rocks or the like twig that. the twig people that are yep. in the, intertwined in the trees all later the in the film. and the yeah. but you probably start to extent start to believe it it's that feeling that something's out there that eerie feeling that would play on your mind oh absolutely for sure um, if you're there for eight days and you have very little interaction with the film crew, eventually you're going to start to think, well, was that the film crew or was that someone else? Like, there is definitely a psychological element that had to have been playing on their minds. Yeah. Especially I mean, by those last few days. when you're watching it, to its credit, yeah, like like you said, like there's a lot of screaming and yelling and some of the handicam stuff's just, like, ridiculous. Like, the quality <laughs> is just... It gets to that point where it really is just essentially almost feels like an early YouTube video sometimes. Yeah, yeah. These people went into the woods and didn't come back, and I'm sure there were a lot of, if you can call them B-movies that were made from this, that kids just went, oh, well, I can make a film like this. Yeah, exactly. Now, um, look how much money it made. Uh, But Um, even even saying that, it's like there is an art to this kind of film. Now, I didn't think it was like a masterpiece in terms of horror. You know, I think I look at films like The Exorcist when it comes to that, but there is still an art to what's being done here. Where I just think you get fear, like there's still yeah. fear. You're feeling you're completely immersed in this film yes. because it's so amateur. It feels real yeah. in that sense. Like it feels like yeah, they've just they're learning how to use their cameras. Mm. They're zooming in at weird times, and some of the shots are out of focus. And... I love all the film terms they use because they're shooting with mags and and shooting in in lengths of feet. I the quote, I want to see it in sixteen. Yeah. I got these film term quotes. Uh, uh, is that it's a it's a sixteen millimeter? Is that a digital yes. camera? The other one? Because there's two cameras, one in black and white, one in color. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that one's digital. Yeah, yeah, that that was the sense. Very got. grainy, grainy. Mm. It's probably like a very early, like a Panasonic or something like that. But. Yeah, but to, but to that point where you say there's a lot of copycats and people trying to replicate this, I, I think there's there's an artful execution here where yeah, the, some of the scenes are just like in, like unseeable, like it's so dark and the camera's just pointing at sticks, but it's like there's still carefully crafted audio design in a lot of those scenes. And I personally think the scariest scene in the film is when the tent, right before it begins to shake, is the sound of, like, the, the cackling female voices outside. Yeah. And it's like, that's just sound design. And as far as I can tell, it's not like they added that in post. Like, that was... They, they, probably, they probably had a those speaker. Voices. Yeah, they yeah. probably had a speaker with, like, the sound effect, and they played it off that. Exactly. That, that's my understanding, is a lot of the audio is straight out of those cameras. They didn't do much manipulation. Um, which, yeah, it goes, again, the level of immersion that the actors are dealing with. They're not acting in front of a green screen. Mm. They're dealing with real, unknown 
circumstances. Yep. So it, it, it pushes to that extent, but then if people try and copycat that, it's purely out of, oh, well, that looks easy to do. Look how much money it made. Look how easy it was to make. And I don't, I don't necessarily think this was an easy film no, I agree. to make. <laughs> I agree. I don't want people to get confused by that. Because even the way they set up the, I'm going to call it the mockumentary setup, it is quite clever because they're obviously intermixing footage of her doing the interview to the camera, but even just like seeing her clap the slate and then cutting to that and then leaving her little mistakes in the footage. It's creating an entire different narrative. And Paranormal Activity and all these other found footage films do the same thing. When you're watching something like Chronicle or this film, you're constantly in the back of your head thinking about the editing choices, not from not from the editor of the film, but the person who found the footage mm. after the real-life event occurred and how they're editing the footage to represent that. A, a good example is this is a completely linear film. There's no, like... Oh, let's let's intermix when that when they find the cans or the rocks on the floor. Let's intermix that with the interview footage of the girl talking about those rocks and how those like. No, it's just you're gonna have to use your memory for that, because by editing it in a linear fashion, that's part of the reason you're buying it, is because it's not overly edited. It's not trying to go back and forth mm. in the timeline and and make it seem like oh this refers to this, this refers to that. It's trying to make it super grounded as if the footage wasn't edited at all. It's just they took the, the film reel out of the camera and played it in a movie theater. That's the vibe they're going for from yeah, the editing absolutely. standpoint. I think they absolutely nail that. I think one thing I want to talk about as well, and this goes in, we just talked about the soundscape and the, the deliberateness of it all. There's no score at all in this film. Which just, add, I mean, that's the whole adding to the authenticity, isn't it? Yeah. I mean... Why would you have a score? Like, there's, it's funny that we live with when we look at horror and what mm. what is deemed scary nowadays. One of the most obvious ways is to drop the score and then pump it up to a hundred, right? Um, kind of like the sting, as they uh, call it. Yeah, it's a, and that jump scare attack, like tactic, and you know, because we're so well versed in our understanding of horror films, when we get to this film and there is none of that, that's once again it's the authenticity they've elected. There's, there is only diegetic sound mm. and, you know, when they scream and they distort the audio because they've audio peaking, it's yep. still, they've left it in there. Like yep. it's not clean. Mm. Um, um, but that helps because what they're, what they're doing is they're creating this very real thing where it feels like, yeah, these kids didn't come out of the woods. <laughs> I am very confused by the ending though. Yeah. I was actually just about to jump onto the ending. So Tell, tell me what you think's, I suppose, happening in the ending. Because it is very sparse. There's not really the big payoff moment. Even Paranormal Activity, you get one last look at the devil before before we cut to credits. Mm. And this film even goes that step further of not giving you any of that satisfaction. We don't see the Blair Witch. We don't see that character in, in any of its incarnations or visual illustrations this film slips into us and there's like I know there was a TV docker that played I think a couple of weeks before the film released mm. which is meant to have more expert opinions quote unquote and that added again to the the viral marketing of this is a real event and real yeah. people died at Cannes they put up missing posters oh that's so good yeah I love that so much and like it must be so eerie to be in that scenario as one of the actors in the film but like you're a part of major film history at that point mm. so tell me with all the the 
sparseness, I guess, the simplicity, the fact that we don't really get much of a payoff at all. No. At least in terms of like a reveal of the witch, the well, the whale they've been chasing. In one this of the whole earlier, time. like one of the, the scenes leading up to it, the penultimate, mm. one of the penultimate scenes is when they're walking through the sun's going down, and they've gone through like the the twig man sequence yes. where they've seen so which very much confirms there is someone else out here, mm. and obviously one of them goes missing. I think it's Josh that goes missing. Josh goes missing. Yes. Um, and then obviously we're left with. Um, the other two and um, they go into a house and they run up some stairs and they think he's downstairs Mm. and at that point so Mike's the the one that goes down because we're hearing Josh screaming at this point I think I believe wasn't it Mike They, they can hear Mike in there so Heather and Josh run in and they're trying to find him and like his voice is coming from upstairs and now it's coming from downstairs and but then they lose each other I think as well. But then she goes point. downstairs and he's standing there and then she gets knocked out mm. and then that's it. And we assume he's is he dead or possessed? Or? I think one of I was meant to rewatch the opening because I frankly I was writing so many notes about the pr- presentation of like how they're incorporating Vox Pox into the main mockumentary structure of the film that I totally missed what they were actually saying but I understand one of the interview subjects early in the film did mention something about how she would make out of two potential victims she'll make one of them I guess possessed stand in a corner and look to the wall as she killed the other I think that was one of like the stories that the yeah. box box so I think that's sort of serving that I believe is yeah he's possessed and that's actually very paranormal activity as well is a character just staring off into nothing and I think part of what makes Obviously, it feels anticlimactic in a way that we anticipate bigger horror films to have payoffs like that. But what it also does is heighten this sense of the unknown. The fact that we never know what the Blair Witch looks like. We never get that moment where the camera falls over and we see like the, the creature walk into frame and stare right into the audience's eyes. We don't get that at all. And that's that can be more terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it says, yeah, Josh's agonized screams, brings him into the house. Mike goes downstairs. He drops his camera because he gets assaulted by this unforeseen force. Mm. Heather goes down, captures him standing in the corner facing the wall, calls out to him, gets knocked over. Right. And you're right, yeah, there is that part in the early part where I think the, the man talks about... Yeah, I think so. Um, ...how he used to kill the victims by... So, yeah, you're right. It's a little... You know, this comes back to, um, like you're saying, like this film obviously has a lot of things going for it that are really good. But I think the fact that there's no monster payoff at the end or mm. it's a very ambiguous, we don't even know really what happens to Josh. He just, they're assumed, they're all presumed missing but dead. Right. right? But there's no horror payoff there. And I, I just, for me, I think that that's a little weak. Right. In terms of story, you know, like I don't want to, like, we want to we want to see death, I think, or at least right. I don't mind it ending with one of them getting knocked over and dying, like it, they're all implied they're all dead or possessed or whatever. But I mean, we never even see what happens to Josh. Like, no. We never see jo- when Josh. Josh disappears and is done. And my my assumption is that Josh is long dead at this point, and the witch is potentially mimicking Josh's voice. Mm. And like spreading it out across the upstairs and the downstairs, and just trying to disorientate Heather and and Josh, sorry, Heather and uh, yeah, Josh. 
then Especially might, when we're might comparing this yes. with, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we're doing the Vich. Yep. And sort of that was the explicit look of that sort of time and place folklore and, and how they did that horror film. And yeah, it definitely, the Vich felt scarier. Um, yeah, yeah. It's tough because I, I don't particularly think either of these films are scary, but I think that's, it goes back to, I think this film works for a very, very specific audience. I would love to watch this in a theater, mm. especially a theater of people who a have never seen the film before, and b are generally terrified by it. Because I can find the cackling voices outside the tent scary, but when they stumble upon you know these rit- rituals or the cans or the, it's like, I'm that doesn't scare me so much, and I think it's because I'm just by myself, you know, at my desk chair, and I think the communal experience of not really knowing what's next and the sudden realization of, oh my God, what am I looking at? And they find Mike's teeth and I think a bit of his hair and skin, I think is in, in the little, mm. the wrap that's there. So I think a lot of the film's horror does rely on the communal experience. But again, the, the sparseness of it, the fact that we don't see the monster at it, and that just leans more authenticity because it's anticlimactic to the fact that it's real footage. Because, it, say, everyone's engrossed in this film and then all of a sudden the witch comes out at the end and, like, screams at the camera and then it cuts to black. Mm. That that might be too much of an, a wake-up call for the audience, especially in the late 90s. Yeah, I think it would have been cool if the camera had fallen and we got, like, a dirty walk into frame or something. Yeah, something some, some in the corner of the frame. Yeah, something that just pays off also what is happening to Mike in the corner. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at this right now and they're saying apparently in the filmmaker's commentary that un- when um, Heather exits the tent and sees something and then runs away, yep. that was actually supposed to be a moment where it panned over to see, reveal the, the Blair Witch itself. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, which was apparently uh, the film's art director, director was actually playing this witch who was wearing white long johns, white stockings, and a white pantyhose pulled over <laughs> his head. It was initially intended for the figure to be re- um, revealed on camera as the Blair Witch herself, but the cameraman forgot to pan to the left oh, of Donahue no. capturing the footage of Marino. So um, that's really interesting. So that would have been... So clearly they would have been in all white. Maybe so they might pencil over him. Could they even afford to do that? I guess the goal must have been that. I mean, mm. I can't imagine a Blair Witch. That, that is I can't a imagine a Blair design. Witch with a pantyhose, <laughs> white stock. Like the fact that it was all white makes me think that it was going to be something else. Yeah. Um, and just that would be the one example of visual effects being used to reveal I, what. It I looks. think it is very, very fortunate that that is how it played out, <laughs> and that's not in the film. But to your point, I I don't think. I mean, the ending is definitely anticlimactic. I, I definitely understand and respect the decision, but there is something I was thinking, maybe the film could have... Because even at 80 minutes, I was like, not bored, but the it felt like the gimmick had run its course very early. And I think something that could have fixed that, although I have to get your opinion on this, I don't know if this sort of breaks the immersion of that linear, very grounded mockumentary mm-hmm. it's going for, is if instead of front-loading the film with all the lore and the, the, you know, the Vox Pox and people talking about their understanding of the Blur Witch was to more so spread out that information, either cut to some of those Vox Pox throughout the film or have the characters discover 
all these you know rituals and these the 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 crosses i guess that are dangling from the trees to maybe comment more on how it connects uh, to so the like... lore of the witch blur blow witch <laughs> yeah that's an interesting one because technically i mean in the the title card that pops up at yep. the start it's inferred that all three of these kids are missing presumed dead yep and someone else has found the footage and decided to put this documentary together. Yes. So yes, essentially we could actually criticize the documentary structure because it's not it's definitely not a conventional archival documentary in that sense. You're right. Integrating those vox pops um probably couldn't integrate all of it obviously like when she's doing that piece to camera outside mm. the the cave and all that. That kind of still needs to sit at the front of the film, but yeah, obviously cutting back to the people in the town, but I think it just wouldn't... The only reason I, I can say it probably wouldn't work is because it just would feel very jarring. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the fact because that Because there's it's... no music and yeah, stuff like that, yeah. I think that helps pad the transition and cutting back to bloke in yellow hat talking about... <laughs> uh, like. It just wouldn't work, I think. I think this is a purely... Inve- it almost... It's an investigation documentary. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's like we were saying earlier, where it's like, it kind of feels like they just took the tape, how it was shot in a linear fashion, and then played it out like that. So I think you're right. It would be jarring if we ever cut back. And it helps with the isolation, because after 15 minutes, after those Vox Pox are done, we, nev- we don't see any other characters. Mm. It's just those three. What would be really cool is if they... Yeah, like you said, like they made that mockumentary documentary um with a few more pieced cameras but what would be really cool if you were like put your madman hat on is you like create <laughs> like a tv special on this blair witch right and it's a much cleaner classic tv documentary and then i mean that's months, exactly what they did and then six months later mm. you have these kids being like oh i want to go and investigate it and then you set it up like that right as a result of this tv documentary but you've are uh, you've actually created all of it so you've created the intrigue and these kids have gone that's really interesting we're gonna go and follow and find yeah. this blair witch i i haven't seen it i'm sure it's something you could probably find on youtube in fact let me get the uh let me get the name of it i think it's from the same year 19 it's like 40 minutes yeah it's like 40 45 minutes i don't know if that obviously it's another fake uh, documentary. I don't know if that specifically references the three kids that have gone missing. Curse of the Blair Witch. Curse of the Blair Witch. That's it. Um, so if we watch it and there is no mention of the three kids that get lost in this film, may- maybe that is how it was meant to have played out. That they were inspired by that 40-minute doco to then go and make what ends up being this film, The Blair Witch. And it's it's interesting because we talk about paranormal activities being something that just spawned this huge franchise. And there are other Blur Witch films I'm very unfamiliar with them. I'm guessing they're all nowhere near as good. Yep. They certainly don't have the novelty or the um, the factor of it being like this new entry or this new genre that it's essentially creating. So the documentary is, this mockumentary was produced airing on the Sci-Fi Channel as a promotional prelude to the release of the Blair Witch Project. That's exactly. <laughs> so... It's what great. A, that's it's a brilliant. brilliant marketing campaign. Yeah. That alone, for me, that's that's why this film goes down in, in history and is mm. a film you must watch because the sheer intelligence marketing, you've turned a film and creating like a doc, like creating a whole fictional lore around it, that's yeah. brilliant. 
Like, that's so smart. And obviously, probably couldn't get away with doing it now. Like, no, this is, we're fed too much they, information. We're too skeptical as a, as a race of humans. But, yeah, what an iconic time and place film mm. in that sense. But, yeah. uh, Jake. Absolutely fascinating. Do you have anything else you want to add before we jump into a highlight scene? I think what I want to just give a shout out to this film and I think films especially horror films were better at this in general and this is something that is a problem with modern horror films and actually another thing that I was really pleasantly surprised about with the Super Mario Brothers movie is that it actually has a first act <laughs> like it, it actually like lets the character you, you get a peek into their lives and mm. establish these things before the inciting incident I mean there are films like it's got the night books I think with uh, Christian Ritter's in it I mean, that, I made fun of that because it's like the inciting incident and the entrance into a new world. That all happens in literally four minutes. Or um, Luca, the Pixar film, that doesn't have a first act. That just skips right into the main like mm. arc of the story. There's no introduction to any of the characters. Now, I feel like modern horror films are not great at this either, especially telegraphing its horror. And what's so great about this film and other great horror films is that the first 30 minutes don't feel like a horror film in any way, shape, or form. The subject matter of, like, a, a creepy witch in the forest and yada, that's all scary, but the characters don't act scared in any way, shape, or form. They're drinking and smoking and mm. having a laugh, and they most of their dialogue is about, you know, having batteries for their cameras. Yep. It takes a long time before the characters start to get a bit agitated and spooked, and part of that isn't even because of the horror surrounding them. A yeah. lot of it is just the frustration of being lost and we understand this as filmmakers, the frustration of a project that goes way longer than it's meant to <laughs> and and collaborating with other filmmakers that are very frustrating or not doing their job or in this case, get them lost in the forest and lose a map. So I love the fact that this doesn't really telegraph its horror in the same way that a lot of mo- modern horrors do. Where char- You've got to have at least 30 minutes at the start of every horror film where a character gets scared by a random cat that walks past mm. or a car, nearly gets hit by a car. Some crappy, unnecessary tele- telegraphing of the genre. So I want to really praise Blair Witch for doing that. And Super Mario Brothers for having a first act. God forbid. Very nice. <laughs> so what was your highlight scene, Jake? My highlight scene, it has to be what I mentioned earlier. It has to be them in the tent right before it shakes, during the shaking. It's the first real overt, like, oh my God, we're being messed with scene in the film, mm. I think. But like I said, the the sound of the cackling, like the laughs from I guess what you would imagine are the witchy characters or character, it's scary. Yeah, I was a little freaked yeah, out. Yeah, that would that. be mine too. <laughs> I, I would I would have to say that is because it it it's a well put together scene, and yeah, it mm. definitely has that scariness to it. I mean, you're out in the middle of nowhere, someone ruffles your tent, and that's pretty scary. <laughs> um, it's pretty hard to top that scene. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. So I'll go with that scene too. The Blair Witch Project is currently out on Amazon Prime. Oh, really? And wide release. Yeah, that's how I watched it. I watched it on Stan. Oh, sorry, it is on Stan. The Curse of the Blair Witch. Uh, the Curse of the Blair uh, Witch is on Amazon. Just to make everything. There you go. Which I honestly reckon. That's how we watch it. Would have been cool. I reckon to watch the mockumentary and then watch the the film. Yeah, I wish I was aware of that before I, I jumped right in. Um. But no, it's a nice little supplementary viewing. And thank you, Zeke, for telling us where to find that too. There you go. Because I'm, I'm very glad to know that. Speaking of streaming platforms and what's new in cinemas, Jake. 
what's new in cinemas and on streaming platforms this week. Well, there's not much coming to Stan or Prime this week, but over on Disney Plus, you got Kazi, Quasi, Quasi, which is a hapless hunchback caught between a murderous feud between the Pope and the King of France, both of whom are trying to get the hunchback to kill the other. Sounds like a fun little, uh, <laughs> fun little comedy, I suppose. Yeah. Very good. Also, you've got Sam Mendes' Empire of Light, which is also coming to Disney Plus this week. There you go. I'm glad I didn't see it at the cinemas, because now I just get to watch it at home. Yeah. Which is not a phrase I thought I would ever Where, use. Where's that coming to? Disney Plus. Okay. Yeah, well, that's the whole Searchlight Fox accusation. Mm. or accu- Accusation? Yeah. Thought of accusation for some reason. Also, coming to Netflix, A Tourist Guide to Love sees a travel executive... After an unexpected breakup, accept an assignment to learn about the tourist industry in Vietnam, where she learns, or excuse me, finds adventure and romance. Nice. Mm, nice little rom-com. Could be interesting. You also got the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, once and always, the 30th anniversary reunion special. Are you into this, Zeke? Oh, who doesn't like a bit of Power Rangers? Yeah. I definitely had a Power Rangers like phase as a yeah. kid. I mean, they're, they're heroes. <laughs> I need a hero. I'd probably watch it. You know that song, I Need a Hero? Yes. Is in both Tetris and Super Mario Brothers. 2013, bit of a re- revival. Yeah. Shrek now, 2. Now we've seen Shrek 2 remake. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and coming to Apple TV Plus, you got Ghosted, which is Chris Evans as a regular dude who falls in love with a secret international spy played by Ana de Armas. Can I we get- would fall in love with Ana de Armas. Fair enough. <laughs> um, I, I managed if I was Anna Diamas, I'd fall in love with Chris Evans. So, yeah. well, I mean, hey, the film's called Ghosted, so someone's got to be ghosting the other. Someone next to me on the flight back was watching Sunshine. Oh, nice. I always Evans forget Chris Evans is in that, and he's mm. got like a goatee. He looks so weird, like in that early two thousands. I feel like he just didn't like. He just didn't look clean. Like, didn't look attractive. The brother in um the brother who's also a cop in Scream looks so much like Chris Evans with a dirty mustache. Yeah. <laughs> That's just something I, I noticed. We don't we don't have to go deeper into that. Now, I'm excited about the Zeke. Coming to cinemas, I'll actually start with a good person. Okay. Because it ties in with Zach Brack, of course. Now that stars Florence Pugh as someone who's trying to rebuild her life and forms an unlikely friendship with Morgan Freeman after experiencing a tragic loss. Now, what's exciting is that there is a director's Q&A with Zach Braff at Luna Leaderville this Sunday the 23rd. It's a virtual screen. It's He's oh. on He's on the big screen. I, I would have gone to that. Well, you still can. When, still, when, when is time. it? It's this Sunday the 23rd. Sunday. Ooh. So it's, you never know. I might have to have a look at that. Well, actually, I do want to see this film. It looks good. I want to see Scrubs. <laughs> there you go. Um, I might as well jump into this one as well. We have Evil Dead Rise, which is the fifth entry in the horror franchise. It seems like kind of a reboot, I'm guessing. Mm. So it's kind of, I, I really don't know what they're, where they're going with this. What's cool, though, about this film, I've known this for a long, long, long time, and it's finally cool to see this part, especially because it's actually getting pretty good reviews. People really like this one. It stars Mia Chalice, who worked with Stephen Clark. Several years ago, friend of the show. There you go. Yeah, and the Twincident. She plays uh, twins in the Twincident. But not the only twins in the Twincidents. Okay. There's other twins in the Twincidents. Okay. So just... Say Twincident again. Yeah, when I say that the blur which appears in the mirror. 
if I say it one more time. And finally, I'm very excited about this. It's got polarizing reviews. I should say divisive views. Reviews. Mm-hmm. Views, reviews, all the same thing. Ariasta's new film, Bo is Afraid, starring Joaquin Phoenix. Huge. I am so hyped for this. This is going to be great. I don't, I don't I don't get where the divisiveness comes from. I mean, of course I don't. Midsommar has like, people that don't, aren't big fans that's of That's true, film. but I think like, I feel like that's generally accepted as like a really great film that just some people just pushes it so far over the edge. It is messed up. Yes. I think Hereditary, I think like the, the, the general consensus later is that Hereditary is like this great horror film. But at the time, very, very divisive. I had people telling me it was the greatest horror film of all time and the worst film they'd ever seen. So, you know, maybe that's just the history of Ari Aster. And a couple of years down from now, we're going to forget the divisiveness. But I'm very excited for Bo is Afraid. That comes out, I think, this Thursday. So, uh, mm. good times to be had by all. Except Joaquin Phoenix, who doesn't look like he's having a good time in this film. <laughs> he looks like he's actually having a horrible time in this film. <laughs> very true. Oh, goodness. But, Zeke? Yes. We're not watching any of those films next week, we? Are certainly we? are not. We're actually moving into our 1980s. Ooh. Uh, decade. decade. In our countdown through the decade. Retrospective, we had two... Uh, more. I would say two more... Two uh, juggernauts, I would two, say. Two juggernauts of the 80s going up against each other. Jake, who won the poll and what are we watching? Yeah, I think... It's funny because, like, in the past, we've done a lot of director's corners landed in the 80s. 80s. So we've always gone for, like, Spielberg or... Reiner. Reiner. Um, David Lynch. Mm-hmm. Lynch? No, I'm thinking of Ridley Scott. Yes. But nevertheless, those are the kinds of picks we've usually gone for the 80s. This time, it's been a little different. No director's corner. But we had two absolute behemoths of films. Now, Cinema Paradiso was up. It lost the vote 18 to 9. So it was actually quite... Div- not divisible, I was going to say. It was a bit of a pylon. Mm. That's doubled the scores league. Absolutely. But the film we are doing... Very, very excited to be talking about this film. Next week in the show, Zeke, we're watching Amadeus. Are we going to appall you with something confidential and disgusting? Let's hope so. Because that is what you really like. Unconfessed crimes of buried wickedness. If that is what brings you to us, the prospect of hearing horrors, you shall not go unrewarded. I don't believe it. The whole city is talking. You hear it all over. What a story. What a scandal. What a comedy. What a tragedy. Incredible. I don't believe it. Who can believe it? What horrors have you heard? Tell us. Tell us. Tell us at once. Tell us about Wolfgang. Amadeus Mozart. Mozart. Mozart? Mozart? <laughs> How good is he, this Mozart? He's remarkable. He's an unprincipled, spoiled, conceited brat. I'm a vulgar man. But I assure you, my music is not. He is divinely inspired. He is arrogant, vulgar, obscene. He creates music for the gods. He is passionate. He burns with fire. He is an angel. He is a devil. He claimed he'd been poisoned. Some said he accused a man. Some said the man was Salieri. Salieri? Salieri. I don't believe it. 
all the same. Could it be possible? Did Salieri do it after all? Did he murder Amadeus? Amadeus, the man, the music, the magic, the madness, the murder, the mystery, the motion picture. Amadeus, everything you've heard is true. Antonio Salieri envies Mozart and believes his musical ability to be that of divine assistance. In spite, Salieri rejects God and sets ahead on a journey of deception, revenge, and hatred. This film rules. I've never seen it. It is. So this is this is it. Oh my god! I've got I got a Blu-ray. It's actually hiding behind that box over there, but I got the Blu-ray for. I think it is the director's cut, so it's mm. like three hours long. And I remember watching the two-hour forty-minute cut and being like, "This is way too short. This feels way too fast-paced. I need the three-hour cut now." So I'm very excited to watch that. I said the same thing about Midsommar and was disappointed, yes. to be fair. So, you know, it's not all sunshines and rainbows, but Amadeus is phenomenal. I'm very excited to tick this one off the list. Um, you had a very amazing uh, experience watching that film. I did. Live um, orchestra, baby. Which we can incorporate into our review of the film next week on the show. Until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And catch us next week with the film Armadeus. Oh,